the good music here again today. Psalm 119, Psalm 119. There is a saying that if you are speaking to a person and they say they are going one way, but their feet are pointed another, then which way would you think they are going? The way they're saying or the way their feet are pointed? It's the way their feet are pointed. And you'll see in the psalm tonight, as the title of the message is, Turn Our Feet to Your Testimonies. It's one thing to speak and to say, I love God and I love Jesus and I'm serving Jesus and Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is my Savior and all the things. And we know people, don't we, who know the Jesus lingo. They know the Jesus talk. And I've met them all through the years in various uh, ministry churches and different people in different places. And I've known some people, they know the talk. They can rattle off all the lingo, all the words, all the terminology. And they say one thing, but their feet are turned in a totally different direction. And we see the way they walk. And their talk and their walk don't match. They talk one way and they walk another. And so in this psalm, in this stanza of this psalm, we will see the importance of our feet being turned to the way of God's testimonies, to the way of his word. So once again, in Psalm 119, we have taken a couple weeks break for the missionary and then the film last week, and I enjoyed that last Sunday night and really helped us uh, get a better understanding of uh, how the deaf, the hearing impaired, receive the gospel and understand the gospel and their perception, and I think that uh, was a blessing to us and a help to us, even as we prepare to host the conference uh, in September. But we have seen Psalm 119 as the Mount Everest of the Bible. This is the stanza, Cheth, that we just read in verses 57 through verse 64. I won't read through every verse again right now, but we will work our way through this stanza. And we see, first of all, in verse 57 that only God truly satisfies. Only God truly satisfies. As we look at this psalm and turning our feet to his testimonies, we must see, first of all, that it is God and God alone who truly satisfies. Verse 57, Thou art my portion, O Lord. We often think of the word portion in the terms of a small part, a small piece. In The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, the definition is allotment, allowance, ration, or share. And yes, there is that aspect, of course, in the definition of the word, there is that idea of allowance or allotment. But in our 21st century thinking, we sometimes think of that as a small part of the whole. I use this illustration a lot, but I remember my freshman year in college, and I was used to eating an entire pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving. And this was the first year that I had ever been away from home for Thanksgiving. And my freshman year, I go to the dining common, and we have our turkey dinner, and I go to get my piece of pumpkin pie, and it is literally a little square. And I was so disappointed. That was not the portion that I was used to having at Thanksgiving. Literally, my mom bakes me a pumpkin pie just for me for Thanksgiving, and sometimes even for my birthday. And I'm thankful for, uh, I'm thankful for pumpkin pie with a little bit of whipped cream on it. But I was so disappointed that I only got a small portion, a little piece. And in our 21st century thinking, sometimes that's the way we are because we're a discontented people. We always want something more. The grass is greener on the other side. There's somebody else who always has bigger, better, faster, stronger, whatever, right? And then the, the, the commercials come on and uh, we, are, we are told that we don't have enough or we're not going to be happy unless we have something else that is just advertised and on and on it goes. And so in our thinking, we can get into this idea that Portion means just a little parts, and we don't have enough. There's always something lacking. But that's not at all what this word is emphasizing. This word is emphasizing that God is everything that we need. He is our all in all. He is our everlasting sustenance, portion, filling, satisfying, allowance, allotment, ration, 
and share. Does that mean that God doesn't give us people and relationships? Of course he does. He gives us a a spouse who is a companion to us and is a blessing to us. He gives us good friendships. He brings along people in our lives who are a help to us and mentors and examples to us. And we're thankful for those people. We're, We're thankful for provisions, material possessions, money and houses and cars. And we're thankful for the way in which God blesses us materially. But none of those people or things ultimately satisfies. As I was going through premarital counseling with this couple that uh, I was able to officiate their wedding last week, or actually a week before now, I was going through premarital counseling and I, and I talked to them about the fact that they are never going to fully, completely satisfy each other in every way. It just doesn't happen. If we only fall in love, how quickly we fall out of love. How many times do couples come together and they have very high aspirations, goals, views, and then they are disappointed when they find out that their spouse is not perfect or their spouse has flaws or disappointments or something that they realized after a few months of marriage that, oh, this is going to take a little bit more work than I expected. I thought it was chocolates and roses and all that good stuff all the time. And it's not that way. It's not that marriage isn't a wonderful thing. It is. When it's in God's time and it's in God's plan, it's according to his will. It's a wonderful thing. But no matter how much Kelly and I love one another, we are not going to be able to fully satisfy each other in every way. It's just impossible. I'm going to disappoint her in some way, and she's going to disappoint me in some way. But together, we continue in our love for one another. It's a choice and it's a covenant. And so we continue to work on our relationship and grow in love for God and for one another, our knowledge of God and our knowledge of of each other and our love for God and our love for each other. And that's the way uh, marriage is supposed to work. That's how I uh, presented the material to this couple that uh, I did their wedding. And I would recommend a book by Jim Binney, the Ministry of Marriage, if you ever have an opportunity to read it. It is an excellent book. And uh, Dr. Benny really deals with the fact that marriage is about ministry. But the point is that God is the one who ultimately satisfies. Somebody somewhere is going to let us down. The car is going to break down. The house, the roof is going to leak. The water heater is going to go out. Something is going to happen. The clothes that we wear, wear out. The video game systems, they break, or there's a new one that comes out, or there's a new phone. And what's coming now? iPhone 15? Is that the one that everybody is looking forward to this year? Sometime, I guess, in November, Apple's going to roll out another phone. I don't know. What's Samsung up to? 652? No, they're at the 22 or the 24 or whatever. I don't know. There's always something in our world today, something better, something greater. And we're now in the computer world where we have AI, and on and on it goes. And if we are not careful, we will be constantly looking to the things of this world to try to satisfy us. But the psalmist realized that God had to be his portion. God had to ultimately be his all in all. Thou art my portion, O Lord. And how did he understand that? By keeping the word of God. By keeping the word of God. I, I like this quote. I put it on the screen because I thought it was so well said. John Mason, I believe he was a Puritan in 1694, said, God is all sufficient. Get him for your portion and you have all. Then you have infinite wisdom to direct you, infinite knowledge to teach you, infinite mercy to pity and save you, infinite love to care and comfort you, and infinite power to protect and keep you. If God be yours, all his creatures, all his works of providence shall do you good as you have need of them. He is an eternal, full, satisfactory portion. He is an ever-living, ever-loving, ever-present friend. And without him, you are a cursed creature in every condition, and all things will work against you. I thought that was very appropriate for this psalm and this verse. 
We know from Psalm 145 in verse number 9 that the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. Psalm 33 in verse number 5, he loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 107 in verse 1, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Psalm 16 in verse 5, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. Psalm 73 in verse 26, My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In the Hebrew poetry, again, portion rhymes with what? With keeping God's word. How do we find God to be our portion? By running after the things of the world? No, but by keeping the word of God, claiming his promises, obeying his principles and his commands. And we won't know God as our sufficiency if we don't know, love, and obey his word. So many times we find discontentment and a lack of satisfaction because we don't know the Lord. We don't walk with him closely. We don't love him like we should. We don't obey him like we should. We're running after other things. And the world is tugging at our heart when we should see the Lord as the strength of our heart, as the psalmist said, as we just read there in Psalm 73 and verse 26. The Lord, God, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Our flesh and our heart will fail us, but God will not. Think about David who wrote this psalm. David knew what it was like to divide the spoil, to conquer a city and to divide up the, the booty, the, the spoil of that city that was conquered, or the, the spoil of the defeated foe. He knew what it was like, David did, as a general, as a soldier conquering and having to divide that up into different portions. Think about David growing up in a big family. Maybe, uh, what was it, seven older brothers? Uh, some of you grow up or have a big family. You know what it's like to be in a big family. Uh, we are considered a big family by some people's standards because we have four kids. When we were, well, we don't get it so much anymore. We do a little bit, but it was not uncommon when the kids were little and we would go out to eat from time to time and you get four kids. Some of you, you're saying four kids, that's nothing. But you know what it is. You go out in public and you got four kids and you're at a table or you're in the store and you got two hanging on to a grocery cart and two hanging on and one's running down the aisle and you're, you know, and, and, and people look at you with those strange looks like, how can you handle, how do you, why do you have all those kids? <laughs> they don't come right out and say that, but they give you that look like, what are you doing with all those children? And it's like, we only have four and there are some families, they have a lot more than that. But imagine David, he knew what it was like with a, with a big family. Think about it. David, he knew what it was like to get hand-me-downs. Now, I, I realize that he was in Bible times and it was a little different than, is, than it is now. But I don't know exactly how all that worked, but did he get the hand-me-downs from his older brother and the, the sheepskins and the, the tunics and the robes and the, the sandals? And you know how, what it's like for the, the younger brothers or sisters? They get the T-shirt from 1985 that has been worn by two or three others. They get the shoes that are partially worn out in the bottoms because older brother or older sister. You know how it, how it is. Uh, we've done that to, to some degree uh, as the kids were growing up. And uh, then there were certain things that didn't fit the, the younger ones. Emily never had to worry about hand-me-downs hand because she was the only girl. Um, but anyway, you know what it's like. David experienced some measure of that. He knew what it was like to only get a portion. We know what it's like, I would think, for us to get the leftovers. I remember my dad, when he retired, he, uh, he said, I'm retired. I've eaten leftovers for 35 years. I'm going to go out to eat for lunch. I still remember my dad saying that one of the earliest days after his retirement. And uh, he used to just do leftovers all the time. There were always plastic containers in the refrigerator. David knew what it was like to get the leftovers, the hand-me-downs, and to have to share spaces. I can't imagine what it was like for David. Did he have to room with three or four of his brothers 
Some of you know what it's like to have to be in a, a room with uh, a sibling or two or three siblings uh, having to share a space. We had three boys in one room in our first house in Indianapolis. And we were literally just trying to find every nook and cranny of that poor bedroom to get all three of those kids. We did loft beds and bunk beds. We had the closet divided up. We had Chandler's clothes on one side and Eric's in the middle and Josiah's on the end. And then they started sports and we were stacking gym bags out in the living room. And we're like, something's going to have to change here pretty soon because we are running out of space. You know what it's like to have a part, to have a leftover, to have only a shared space. David experienced that, but you know what? He found God to be his all in all. David found God to be his sufficiency. He learned in the fields and in the pastures as a shepherd. As he watched the sheep, no doubt, do some of the dumbest things, looking for greener pastures, getting themselves in all kinds of trouble, and then having to deal with them, having to rescue those dumb sheep out there in the fields and the pastures. And no doubt God taught him some lessons to the point that David would write in Psalm 23 and verse number 1, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Oh, that we would come to that place where we would find that God is everything that we need, that God is enough, that I shall not want. So we see in verse 57, Thou art my portion, that only God truly satisfies. And then we see in verse 58, the psalmist writing, I entreated thy favor with my whole heart. Be merciful unto me according to thy word. Verse 59, I thought on my ways and turn my feet unto thy testimonies. We see here in verse 58, in turning to God's testimonies, we must seek his favor. I entreated thy favor with my whole heart. This is God's favor. This is not my definition of what I think that God should bless me with and what he should do for me. This is not this idea that is so prevalent in religious culture now that God is a great genie in the sky and I just rub the magic lantern and he gives me whatever it is that I want. In this word faith movement and this health, wealth and prosperity gospel that basically I dictate my testimony, I, I dictate my destiny and I tell God how I want to live, what I want to do and then if I say the right things, if I do the right kind of religious or pious actions, if I have the right words and think the most positive thoughts and say the right positive things to my circumstances, then God will just give me everything that I want, everything that I desire. And then you have pastors and pastorettes or whatever you want to call them, who oftentimes in this health, wealth and prosperity gospel movement, they drive the fancy cars and live in the big houses and they have their fleet of cars and sometimes their airplanes and they have all their nice jewelry and their fancy suits and they say, if you were as spiritual as me, if you had my faith, I am the example of how you should live and if you had my faith and if you loved God and served God and spoke to your circumstances the way I do, then you would have everything that I have. So I can make an excuse for my big mansion and my fleet of cars and my airplane and my jewelry. So when the pastor and his first lady in New York City, they got robbed several months ago. They got robbed in the service and they took a million dollars worth of jewelry from the pastor and his wife during the service as they were robbed. Now, our security team wouldn't let that happen, thankfully, okay? But they wouldn't get a million dollars from us. I don't even know if they would get $1,000 in jewelry from us if they came in the, in the service and robbed us. But that's where that goes to. That's where that attitude is. That's prevalent in a lot of religious circles now. That's not what the psalmist is saying. He's not saying that... I then make up what I believe God should favor me with. No, he's saying his favor, God's favor, isn't something that we feel as we create the right mood and the 
the right atmosphere and say the right words and have the right faith talk or word faith. No, this favor is the quiet assurance of the heart as a result of obedience to God's commands and God's principles and trust in his promises. As a child obeys and receives a hug, a compliment, a smiling face, an assurance from his or her parent that they did a good job, they did right, they did well, so we have the favor of the Lord. And how much does a child, yes, an award is nice, a prize is nice, yes, it's nice to get something, and we've done that with our kids, you get a dollar for every A or whatever the, you know, and and we've done those awards, but isn't it nice to just sometimes know as you get a hug, you get a smile, a pat on the back, a good job to know that mom and dad are happy, are pleased with your action, your attitude. As parents, as grandparents, as we see our children, our grandchildren do right, do well, make good decisions, we let them know how pleased we are with their choices. And that goes a lot further than buying them things. And I've known parents who they think that the only way they can ever reward their children is to buy them stuff. And then they find they eventually get old enough, they figure out that, oh, mom and dad's love is all based on what I can get from them, what they can give me, what they can buy for me. And then I've seen kids who grow up, they have everything, and it's name brand, and they go on big vacations, and they have it all, but they have no relationship with mom and dad. And they found out that their love was somehow with a dollar sign. And the child eventually grows up and realizes that mom and dad are just trying to buy love. And it doesn't work that way. And God is, is not loving us based on all of the wonderful things that we do. He loves us with an everlasting love, even in spite of our sin. And he's willing to forgive us when we confess our sins. I'm talking about the love for the love of God for his child, for his children, for those who are saved. It's an everlasting love. It's not based on our performance. Should we obey? Should we desire to please him and not do those things that displease him? Sure. But his favor is ultimately based upon his covenant love for us as his child. And yes, there is times where there's chastening, and that's even done out of love. Even that chastening is with the purpose of bringing forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. But the point is, the psalmist is seeking the favor of God. He wants to do what pleases the Lord, and he wants that assurance from God, that favor from the Lord that is based on an obedient life, of doing the will of God and fulfilling the will of God that God has called us to. It even has to do with a clean conscience, with not having the regrets of sin. Let's turn over to Psalm 18 and see this for a moment. Psalm 18. We know that David had sin in his life. We know that David had failure in his life. And we don't have time to read this entire chapter. 50 verses of Psalm 18. But notice what David says. Looking down in Psalm 18 in verse number 20. The Lord rewarded me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also upright before him, and I kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore hath the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyesight. There is a psalmist. There is David writing. Though he had failure, though he had sin in his life, he did not wickedly depart from his God. He recognized that he had the covenant love of God. It was not his desire to sin. He was not turning his feet away from God's testimonies in rebellion and going his own way. Yes, he had stumblings, he had failure, he had faults. 
And yes, he was like that good man who falls seven times and seven times gets up again. Because David was a man after God's own heart and his heart desired to please the Lord. Though there was still sin and there was failure so that he could write in Psalm 18 that the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. And he talks about the cleanness of his hands. That's talking about the clean conscience and the lack of regrets. That is part of the favor of God. And then we see in verse 59 that we should consider our ways. Consider our ways. We read there in verse 59, I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. Do we think on our ways? Do we consider our ways? Do we evaluate our life? Do we examine ourselves like we should? I've used the illustration many a time already, I know, about evaluations. We had them at college. I remember my junior year, and we would have evaluations. And I had a roommate in particular, one in particular, and we did not get along very much that entire year. It wasn't until late in the school year. And we're sitting down in evaluations, and he's telling me all the things he didn't like about me, and I'm talking about all the things about him that I felt like he needed to grow up in. And it was at that point in that conversation that we finally looked at each other, and we said, you know what, we've been roommates this whole year, and we have bumped heads a lot. And I I said, Steve, I said, you have tried to bend the rules, and at times you have broken the rules. At times I felt like you were just trying to make life difficult for me. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, I did. There were times I just thought you were the most annoying person, the rule keeper, on and on. And he said, but you know what? It's all over now. I said, he said to me, he said, I respect you, and I appreciate what you did, and I, I'm sorry for being such a jerk for so long. And I said, I'm sorry for not always being the, the best leader and prayer captain. Uh, I guess they call them discipleship group leaders or something now. And uh, I said, I'm sorry for not being uh, the best uh, group leader, prayer captain. Um, but Steve, I, I appreciate you saying that. And we, we got along the rest of the semester. He even nominated me to be chaplain for my society. And uh, we, we had a great uh, last several weeks of the semester. I'm thankful for that evaluation time. And how many times do we do that? Sometimes it takes an argument with our spouse. I'm sorry, a discussion with our spouse before we finally have to do some self-evaluation. Why is this relationship, why is it not working so well? Why are we bumping heads all the time? Let's step back. Let's talk. Let's work through this. Considering our ways, thinking through, analyzing. You know, we don't do this much at all in our culture, period. We don't like to be evaluated We always have to blame ship. We don't like authority in our culture. We're anti-authority in a lot of ways. And it's the selfish culture in which we live. But I, I would have to say that one of the deceptive, subtle tricks of the devil is to distract us and to keep us from meditating on the things of God. From really thinking deeply about the things of God to keep us from really, truly considering our ways, thinking and evaluating our life. The psalmist says here that I thought on my ways, and it was when he thought on his ways, when he considered his ways, when he examined his life, when he analyzed his life, and he evaluated his life, that's when he realized what? He had to turn his feet to the Lord's testimonies. He is saying, I can talk the Jesus talk. I can talk the good talk. I can make everybody think that I am in love with Jesus, but my feet might be turned away from God's testimonies, and my life really shows that. And he says, i got to get my feet pointed in the way of God's testimonies. That's really where the direction of my life is. And that came from considering his ways, from evaluating his life. You know, in our lives, in our culture today, we want constant entertainment. There's constant noise, excitement going from one cheap thrill to another, one entertainment to another. On and on it goes. We can go from one reel to the next, one TikTok to the next, one video to the next. We can binge watch and then change to another app, another streaming service, and binge watch another series. Constantly, we have something that we can do for entertainment, for noise, for excitement, to try to make us happy, to give us a thrill, to 
maybe keep us from thinking about the more serious things in life, whatever the case may be. And it will prevent us from meditating on the things of God, from thinking deeply about God and his word, and from analyzing our life. I saw it in education. I still see it to some degree in education. Schools that suffer from students who can't think through things. They can't analyze or problem solve. Critical thinking skills. I don't mean that in a negative way, but we used to talk all the time about critical thinking skills. Being able to analyze something, even a paragraph of text, analyze it and give some information, detailed information about it. Being able to solve a problem, being able to look at something and figure out what's wrong and find solutions. This week, there was an article that came out from the National Assessment of Educational Progress. I remember when the NAEP came to our school and gave tests to our fourth graders. They were extremely kind people. They did a very thorough job. I was, I was much more appreciative of them than I was of iLearn. But that's, don't even get me started on that. But the NAEP released a report just recently which shows alarming scores for 13-year-olds in the areas of math and reading. The data shows a four-point decline in reading skills and a nine-point decline in math skills since 2020. That's scary stuff. We can blame COVID and the teachers' union, and that's part of it. But I'll have to say that part of it is right here. Part of it is the constant entertainment, the brokenness of families. I watched as kids couldn't pay attention in school because they had never been taught to sit still at home much less have a conversation, to have an actual conversation with another person, much less an adult. It was rare for many kids. It still is. I see it all the time. You go out in public and you see kids who are constantly in front of a screen. I remember third graders walking in with iPads before school with a cell phone signal in third grade. You watch kids today, and we've done our fair share of screen time with our kids, and sometimes you just need some sane moments, right? It's, it's easy to do. But you watch kids today, they walk into the restaurants, and all of them have headphones or earbuds and a screen. And sometimes they're two or three years old, and the parents are sitting there, and they're barely talking to each other because they're on their phones, and all the kids are on screens. That's part of the problem. That's part of the decline. And test scores aren't everything. But doesn't it reflect a culture that doesn't think much anymore, that doesn't analyze, doesn't evaluate? No wonder churches are full of shallow people, superficial people, who in many cases aren't even saved. They never thought deeply about any doctrine, any soteriology, never had any deep thoughts about God, but they had a, a Jesus moment. They had a Jesus jam. They had a celebration of Jesus and, and I don't want to get too crazy here in some of my, my, my preaching, and I know it's going to keep the pews from being full here, but my point is that there are too many shallow, cotton candy, Christianity, sugar stick types of Christianity and sermons and messages and music and entertainment that is going on, and we're never even having a real confrontation with God through Jesus Christ, about our sin and about doctrine and truly thinking deep things about God. And then our young people and even us as adults, we cannot even give a defense for our faith, much less share some with someone the, the, the plan of salvation and how to be saved. And it's, it's sad when we, we grow up and we can't even give a reason for the hope that lies within us. And again, this isn't meant to be a all negative, you are a well-taught people. But it concerns me when I see a mile-wide deep, or excuse me, a mile-wide Christianity that's an inch deep. And I see the shallowness of so many who can't think deep thoughts about God or even about doctrine. And we need to have a ready mind. We need to have a renewed mind. We need to have the mind of Christ. We need to be sober-minded. We need to gird up the loins of our mind. And we need to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. One more thought on this, and I'll move on. 
But I'm, I'm fearful in our culture today with the drug epidemic, with marijuana, it seems like, all the time in every place, and now it's being sold in places where it's supposed to be illegal, I thought, I don't know. But it's not going to be, I was talking to someone just the other day, it might have been yesterday at our activity, but it's getting so bad in our culture with all the marijuana and drugs that's in our culture and in the streets that there's going to be 40-year-olds who don't have two brain cells to rub together because they have fried their brains on drugs and all these other types of substances that are out there. I read just another article this week about the dangers of one alcoholic drink a day and the damage it does to the body. This was in a secular, what we would consider liberal or center-left news organization that published an article saying even one alcoholic drink a day does physical damage to your body. It's incredible that we don't think through some of these issues and think biblically. The psalmist said, consider our ways. He said that in verse 59, as he thought on his ways, that he had to turn his feet unto thy testimonies. How important is seeking his favor, is considering our ways, and then hastening to his word. I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. James says we need to be slow to speak, we need to be slow to wrath, we need to be quick to what? To hear. Quick to hear. God gave us how many ears? And how many mouths? I think that was for a reason, right? So often we are really quick to speak and we're very slow to hear. And God wants us to be hearing his word and be doers of the word. We need to be quick to obey, slow to speak, quick to hear, and slow to wrath. And then we read in verse 61, we are to again remember his word. We've talked about this in previous messages from Psalm 119, so I won't belabor this point. But we're to remember his word. The bands of the wicked have robbed me. That's easy to happen in our culture. Headlines, all the different news organizations that are pummeling us with all of the data and the statistics and all the headlines about everything that's wrong in the world. And we probably have four or five sources that we go to or more that will give us the news that we, we want to hear. And sometimes we go to the other sources just to hear the opposite side, just to get ourselves angry or to try to figure out what in the world are they thinking, okay? But we have all these sources, and many of them bring negative thoughts. And sometimes it does feel like, as the psalmist, that the wicked are robbing us. And if we're not careful, the wicked and the evil of this world will rob us of the joy of the Lord. And the psalmist realized that. He said, when that happens, when I feel like the wicked are robbing me of the joy. I have to go back to thy law, he said. I have to go back to the word of God. I must not forget God's law. When I am tempted to think of the wicked and the evil and dwell on that and allow that to rob me, or even when the wicked persecute, maybe he's even speaking of actual persecution. David had his fair share of evil done to him, right? And, and sure, it had times of discouragement. There were times where he was in despair. We read that in other Psalms. As Saul's trying to attack him, or even his own sons in rebellion, various ways in which David had to deal with difficulties. We're not sure of the exact circumstance, but when the bands of the wicked have robbed me, we must not forget thy law, God's word. And then, verse 62, giving thanks. At midnight I will rise to give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous judgments. Do we have sleepless times? The idea is, yes, at midnight, in the sense that there are sleepless times. How many times did David get woken up in the fields, in the pastures, with various sounds of bears and lions and whatever else was out there in the wilderness as he's taking care of the sheep? I would imagine David had many times where he was wakened during the night and there were times where he literally, with his physical hands, he killed a lion and a bear. So those were two times where he literally physically had to kill them. Can you imagine all the moments he was woken up by various sounds? Our poor dog, we have our little, our little dog, and he looks out the back window in that woods behind our house. He imagines things. He hears things. Now, last night we had a deer 
and her little Bambi right behind her about 10 o'clock, 10.30 last night, walking through our backyard. And we've heard, all, I don't know, all kinds of different sounds. Um, we had some guy who was lost, I guess, in the woods, and he was walking up through the, the woods and stumbling through the woods. And I, uh, I heard him, and I went out over to the woods, and I kind of looked, and I saw this guy kind of stumbling through the woods. And I said, excuse me, sir, but this is private property. And uh, he was like, oh, I'm sorry. And then he, he went on his way. But those kinds of sounds that disturb and our little dog will bark his head off and get all excited and we get those nervous times in the middle of the night when we hear a sound and we, or as you as a wife, you elbow your husband and say, honey, can you go find out what that noise is? And we courageously go down there with our nine millimeter and uh, we're, we're, we're taking on the, whatever the enemy and we find out something just fell out of the cupboard or in the sink or something. But we were there. We were going to take them on and we're going to get the boogeyman. But here's David, who no doubt had all those times out in the pastures, out in the fields, and those different sounds, and he'd be awakened, and what would it do? It would cause him to thank the Lord for his protection, for the things that God was doing in his life. And we read in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 8, verse 18, in everything, give thanks. It would do us a world of good, wouldn't it, to be more thankful, to have an attitude of gratitude, not just at Thanksgiving, but all the time. And then we close tonight with verses 63 and 64. I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy. Teach me thy statutes. We know the psalm. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate therein day and night. What did the psalmist write? I am a companion of all them that fear thee. We tell our young people all the time, we tell our children, our grandchildren, watch out who you hang out with. And know what I have found in my life? As I tried to do right, and by all means, I was not perfect, and I'm fall, I fall far short of perfection now. A long ways to go, and I won't get there until I get to heaven. I have feet of clay. But I have found... In my life, if I just tried to do right and I made a pattern of my life to try to please the Lord and make good decisions and to obey those in authority over me, I have found that the rebellious kids, the guys who didn't really want to do right, I found that they didn't really want to be around me. Now, there were times I had to stand up, there were times I had to speak up, and there were times where I didn't stand up or speak up like I should have. To, to my regret. But I have often told young people, you do right. You obey. You submit to the authorities in your life. You listen to your mom and dad. And even to that teacher sometimes that drives you crazy, you will find that the rebels, that the kids who want to break the rules, who want to get away with stuff, they'll eventually figure out that you ain't one of them. And they'll get away from you. And you may have to walk alone for a while, but God will make up the difference. God will bring people into your life who fear him, who will help you in your life and help you do what's right. And so it's important that we keep our eyes on the Lord and we keep fearing God. And we watch out. Yes, we have to. We have to watch out for those people who would come into our life, who would cause us to disobey the word of God, who will cause us to be worldly minded who will lead us into carnality and lust and temptation. Stay away from those people. The psalmist reminds us of that here in Psalm 119 and in Psalm 1. And then in Psalm 26 in verse 5, he even says, I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. Wouldn't that solve us? Wouldn't that solve a lot of problems in our lives if we just obeyed that simple truth? To hate the congregation of evildoers... I've given the illustration I know many times. I've talked with young people, sat them in my office. Young man after young man, student after student. Where were you? Who were you with? What were you doing? And nine times out of ten, they're in trouble, and maybe they weren't the one. Sometimes they were the one who was doing the very act. But sometimes it was just they were right there with the wrong people at the wrong time, making some poor decisions about where they were, when they should have been somewhere else, when they could have been doing something else, when they should have been obeying in some other area and been where they should have been. 
And they could have saved themselves a lot of trouble. And sometimes they're right there and they are applauding the one who is willing to go out and do the dirty deed. And they're cheering them on. Oh, they may not be willing to do it, but they're cheering them on. And I said, okay, you're a companion of fools. You're sitting with the evildoers. You're hanging out in the congregation of the wicked. Don't sit with them. Get out of there. What did Joseph do? He put on his running shoes and he got out of there. Yeah, it cost him a little while. He was in the prison, but he did right. He ran from Potiphar's wife and it cost him a little while, but God was with him, even in that dungeon, even in that prison. God had a plan. And what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And God overruled and overcame. And we have to trust God in those times where we have to walk alone. 1 Corinthians 15, evil communications corrupt good manners. Literally, evil companions corrupt good morals. How true that is. And in Proverbs 13 and verse 20, he that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. We have to mourn ourselves and our young people that it's not just the people that are physically in our lives, but we have to watch out for the digital friends, the digital companions, the Instagram accounts, the Snapchat accounts, the perversion accounts. And I could begin to name some of the ones that are out there that are nothing but filth, that are nothing but temptation. And the algorithms pick up on our temptations. The algorithms pick up on our sin. Do we realize that? Do we realize how big tech has algorithms that once we start down a sinful digital path, the algorithm is happy to just keep feeding that to us. And so a young person begins a little, a little bit of sin, a little bit of pornography, a little bit of sensuality, a little bit of that chat, of that group, of that account, and it begins to pull our heart away, and that algorithm says, hmm, let's give them more of that. And the algorithm comes out and says, oh, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and we get sucked in. And sin takes us farther than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and costs us more than we want to pay. We have to watch out even for the digital companions today and be so, so careful. This is an old story, an old illustration. You can get the book for really pennies on the dollar. Harold Morris, and he has a a video on YouTube you can watch. It's only about 45 minutes. I often think of Harold Morris... I believe it was 1984, I need to double check in my notes here, but I believe it was 1984, yes, 1984, he was was diagnosed with terminal cancer in 1984, and yes, I was alive in 1984, and yes, I was 10 years old in 1984, but I know my kids will say, anyway, they tease me about getting old, and I know I'm getting old, they are getting older and I'm just not getting any younger, but it was 1984, Harold Morris was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and uh, I was in uh, maybe junior high or high school when the video was shown in our, in our class, in our school, but he wanted to use his last few months to share the story of his life, falsely convicted of armed robbery and murder at age 29. He spent the next nine years behind bars, struggling to survive in what was widely recognized as the worst prison in the United States, the Georgia State Penitentiary. But inside prison, he found something unexpected. He found hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. After almost a decade behind bars, Harold Morris was paroled in 1978. He finally received a commutation from the state of Georgia, restoring all of his individual and civil liberties in 1981, one day before he graduated from college. Once again, a free man, he dedicated his life to speaking to millions in the United States and around the world about the dangers of drugs and alcohol and associating with the wrong crowd. Four young men went to a grocery store. Three of them decided to go in. Harold Morris was driving the getaway car. Those four men went into that grocery store, and three of them decided as they were in there to do a simple robbery and take just a candy bar and a couple of little things, as they were going through the checkout line at the grocery store, somebody saw what they were doing and came after them, and one of those young men pulled out a gun and shot the grocery store clerk that was coming after them, murdered on the spot. Those three men came, those three young men came running out, jumped in the car. Harold Morris was driving the getaway car. 
Harold Morris realized, uh-oh, there is big-time trouble. He floors it. He's driving out of the parking lot, and he's, got, he's going, guys, what in the world are you doing? What, what happened? We just shot a man. We just shot a man. We just shot somebody. And he's screaming. What are you thinking? Everybody else gets away as the car goes off the road, and the police come, and Harold Morris is hauled off into prison. The other three guys got away. And for years, Harold Morris sat in the Georgia State Penitentiary, an innocent man. Yes, he was guilty of driving the getaway car, but not of murder, not of robbery. And it wasn't until 1981 that he was fully commuted of that sentence. And he went around speaking to millions, it says, of the dangers of drugs and alcohol and of associating with the wrong crowd. He hung out with the wrong crowd. Hung out with those doing drugs and in rebellion and breaking the law, alcohol. They decided, oh, just do a little petty robbery. Oh, it's just going to be a quick little, we'll go in and we'll stir up some trouble. We might steal a couple things and get out, no, no problem. And they end up shooting somebody. And he ends up in prison for all those years. And finally he did get out and God overruled and God overcame. He got saved and he became a preacher of the gospel and giving his testimony And in 1991, 13 years after his release from prison, Harold Morris received the Vice Presidential Humanitarian Award of Honor in Washington, D.C. for his contribution to the lives of youth and prison inmates. Harold Morris determined he was going to use the rest of his life to warn others. And thankfully, by God's grace, he overcame, and God used him in a great way to warn many other young people. But I remember watching that video, and you can watch it on YouTube to this day, I know it's an old, grainy 1980s film, 1990s film, but it's well worth watching because Harold Morris says, I was with the wrong crowd. I was, a, it was, I was a companion of fools, and I ended up in prison for all those years. And he warned the young people of making those same foolish choices that he made. So may we turn our feet to God's testimonies tonight. May we once again be friends with those who fear God and remember that only God truly satisfies And turn our feet to his testimonies. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you, Lord, for even the testimony of a Harold Morris who all of us probably have never met and don't know. But, Lord, his testimony is one of warning of hanging out with fools. Lord, may we turn to your testimonies, turn our feet, turn our lives to be obedient to your word, to go in the direction of your testimonies. And Lord, challenge us, help us, Lord, to be obedient and faithful this week in loving you and serving you and living a holy life that honors and pleases you.